Yogi Berra uh, or Lawrence Peter Berra, known as Yogi Berra, uh, was, was uh, not just known for his um, strange statements. Uh, he is a, was an 18-time All-Star player, spending 17 of his seasons with the New York Yankees. He won 10 World Series as either a, a catcher or as a player, he won 10 World Series as a catcher, more than any player in Major League Baseball history. And he went on to be a manager for the New York Yankees as well. But as I mentioned, Yogi Berra is, is uh, known for some dumbfounding statements that just seem to roll off his tongue. Says when you take, he was known for saying, when you take a fork in the road, or when you come to a fork in the road, take it. He also said 90% of baseball is mental. The other half is physical. How does that work? He complained once that a nickel just ain't worth a dime anymore. Says always go to other people's funerals, he, he advised. Otherwise, they won't come to yours. No, no, no. And... uh he also claimed that he never said most of the things he said. There were some other dumbfounding statements made this past week. They centered around the NCAA softball championship, the World Series, the Women's World Series, uh, College World Series. They were made by three of the Oklahoma University uh, players. And maybe you've uh, heard or seen clips from the press conference that was given, the pre-game press conference on June 6th. This team has faced a lot of pressure, the pressure that comes from winning. With a, at the time, it was a 52-game winning streak. What that means is every team that plays against you, when they play you, it's their World Series. They've probably geared their whole season towards trying to beat your team. They were going for their seventh World Series title, their third World Series in a row, which they won. But the pregame conference stuck out to me the most because it's from that that they were making the claims, you know what, whether we win or we lose – that's not really what's most important. I hope you'll bear with me. We're going to be watching some about four minutes from that, that press conference. The question that was asked of, the, of these three teammates was how do you handle the unique pressure that comes with that? that how do you keep the joy for so long when anxiety seems to be a thing they could very easily set in. These three young women's responses speak volumes, and it's enough for us to get to watch it here. So let's watch their response. What statements, especially, you know, those last statements by Alyssa Brito, no matter the outcome, whether we get a trophy in the end or not, this isn't our home. And I think that's what's amazing about it, she says. We have so much more. We have an eternity of joy with our Father. 
And I'm so excited about that, she says. And yes, I live in the moment, but that's not but I know this isn't my home, and no matter what my and no matter what, my sisters in Christ will be there with me in the end when we're with our king. These young women model for us what we are looking at here this morning. Personal kingdom commitment. Jesus gets really, really personal in the Sermon on the Mount at this point where we're at in verse 19. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You know, I've heard more than one financial planner commercial that that says, make your money work hard for you. I'm not really sure that person gets what Jesus is talking about here. It's not ours. Whatever it is, whatever we're tempted to amass, it's not ours. How do we help our money, quote-unquote, work for us? How do we help ensure our eyes are working correctly? How do we ensure that we are working for the right master? Jesus answers those questions in our passage here this morning. First, I want to challenge you to work from a personal kingdom commitment as you plan your finances according to God's kingdom plans. He mentions, just, just as, as Alyssa Brito puts in her own words, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, I'm sorry, on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, we, th- we, we tend to think that our needs are going to be met through personal wealth. We tend to think that if we just had more money, we'd be free from worry. You know, some of the wealthiest people on earth have been asked how much is enough, and their response is just a little more. We think we'll be secure. We think we'll sleep well. We tend to think that amassing wealth will make us finally successful, that it'll finally give us joy. I love what Warren Wiersbe says. It is not wrong to possess things, but it is wrong for things to possess us. Many of Jesus' parables dealt with the right attitude toward wealth. We'll learn about how the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure 
that a, that a man finds in a field. And then he covers it up and in joy, with great joy, he goes and sells everything that he has so that he can buy that field. And, and we're to hear that story and think, well, of course, it's a no-brainer. But we're to look at the kingdom of heaven as being like that treasure. Other places the New Testament tells us such as in Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Whereas the Oklahoma University team as I mentioned in that press conference, eyes up. Eyes up. We're told in 1 Timothy 6, 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You know, most of us would look at this and say, well, this doesn't qualify. I, you know, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich. Folks, we are all richer than 95% of the world. We are the rich in this present age. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but set your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So it's his goal that we should have joy. It's his goal that we should enjoy this life. And that joy, that enjoyment begins with recognizing he supplies it. We don't supply it. Jesus is essentially telling us, don't invest all that you have in, in material things that have no earthly gain. There's no guarantee that earthly gain will even come to fruition. Inflation, disaster, decay can wipe out our earthly investment. Instead, convert your earthly treasure into heavenly treasure by using it to further God's kingdom work. There's nothing that can or will destroy what is put into God's service for eternity. And the benefit of investing in heaven is that it helps us to keep our hearts set on what is eternal. You know, I'm kind of fascinated with the idea of pirates. You know, not the uh, you know pirates of the Caribbean uh, idea with it, but 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 the, the you know Blackbeard and such, and and these guys spent their lives trying to avoid scurvy, you know, out on the ocean in the Caribbean and, and coast of Africa and, and places like this, stealing from other ships. And yet, you know, what we always hear of the lore is, where is Blackbeard's treasure? Because all of these guys ended up dead at the end of a noose. With their, most of them with their treasure squirreled away somewhere for, you know, sometime when they can stop being a pirate, I guess. Don't be a pirate. Don't take from God and squirrel it away. 
Or as God says in Malachi 3, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now this might be a spot where some folks, they might say, see, give, and it's going to be given back to you. Give, and it's going to pour down from heaven for you. Folks, we're about pressing you into your relationship with the Lord. We're about challenging you to obey what he is telling you to do. We don't teach tithing. I just say that because it comes up in this Old Testament passage here. We believe that's an Old Testament issue. Uh, The fact is is that the uh, Jewish nation, they didn't give just 10%. They gave 23% annually. They gave a tithe at one point in the year, a tithe at another point in the year, and they gave a tithe every three years. But they were also paying for their municipality as well. So we don't, it, it, it's complicated. But, but we believe that God wants you investing as he directs in his kingdom work where he is at work. One writer says, what does it mean to lay up treasures in heaven? It means to use all that we have for the glory of God. It means to hold loosely when it comes to material things of life. It also means measuring life by the true riches of the kingdom and not by the false riches of this world. So how do we help our money to work for us? By listening to God's leading in how to use it. In obedience to him, we will find it working for us for all of eternity. As we glorify God with it, as we lay those crowns at his feet. Here's what's sad. In this warning of not laying our hope, not setting our hope, not not allowing material things to, to control our hearts, Entire churches can set their hearts on money as their solution. Entire churches can, can set their hearts on, on finances for, for, as their security. The fact is, is that if you know Christ as your Savior, you're walking in a relationship with God, with the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And as Paul tells the Corinthians, each person should 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 decide, should should prayerfully decide at the beginning of the week, setting aside what God wants them to be investing material in his, in his kingdom. It's about a relationship with God in which he guides you and leads you in how to invest in his kingdom. And he'll do that. We usually think, Well, how about this? I'll hoard these riches a little bit longer, and then I'll invest in God's eternal purposes once I'm financially secure. I got some bad news for you. 
It's this, our spiritual eyes become blurred and clouded by materialism. That's why Jesus goes on to say, and and I want to challenge you from his words, to work from a personal kingdom commitment as you see the world through kingdom lens. It says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? When he talks about the eye being good, it literally means if the eye is single. It's a metaphor for a life totally devoted to the service of God. I don't know if that means like not cross-eyed, not double vision. A good eye versus a bad eye in a physical sense has to do with whether or not it's sending accurate information to the brain. Whether it's, it's casting light on the brain in terms of what's actually going on in the world around it. Eyes that are colorblind or blurred or blinded completely are much less helpful for the brain to be able to make the right decisions. And so that's where this metaphor is going. In New Testament times, a person actually being stingy toward others was associated with bad eyesight. Envy is considered in many cultures to have an evil eye. Uh, In fact, in in a lot of uh, third world cultures, if you've traveled there, sometimes you've seen that as a building is being built, you know, with rebar and concrete and all these things, they'll hang like a stuffed animal on the building. And just, it's a cultural thing. And the idea is, When people are looking at that building, and if they're looking at it with envy, they believe they're looking at it with an evil eye. And and because of their envy, their, their evil eye looking at that building is actually almost wishing bad things on the building. And so they put the stuffed animal on there to absorb all the evil eye activity. And then once the building's done, they take the stuffed animal and burn it. I am so glad for God's word. (laughs) to guide us against these things. But the fact is, even in New Testament times, bad eyesight is associated with envy or being stingy, not being able to see the needs around the person. And this is because the thought was that they are not able to see the needs of others that are right before them. The idea is that a person being stingy towards the needs of others or kingdom ventures, they are a deterrent to themselves like a blind person that can't see an opportunity that is right before them. Or as the New Testament commentary says, if the idea of the lamp was that which enables the body to find its way, the thought is of a purposeful life directed toward what its true goal should be. The alternative is a life in the dark, like a blind man, because the evil eye of selfish materialism gives no light to show the way. The idea here is that materialism can affect our eyesight to the point that we can't even see the very thing that we need in front of us to have purpose. You know, imagine a blind man sitting on a sidewalk begging for decades 
that that's that's how he would he would find his substance uh, his subsidence subsistence there we go that's how he he thought this is the only way that I can that I can make it and over time someone notices that that his eyes are becoming clouded that his eyes are like glaucoma or cataracts or something and they're telling him if you'll just go over to the free clinic they can help work on that for you you know this can be treated and years later they come by and they see the same man sitting on the sidewalk begging and he's completely blind now and they're amazed because they're just out of reach is a pile of money but he can't see it that's the idea here is that that putting our hope in the material things of this world blind us to the point that we can't even find our way back to what gives real meaning outlook determines outcome just as our ability to see correctly is going to be affected by the decisions that we make the way that we see the purpose of our lives is going to affect the whole focus or the result of our lives that's what jesus is saying here seeing the material world as what god is as being what god provides for the building of his kingdom will cause your life to be full of light full of fruitfulness seeing the material world as yours to obtain and to use for your purposes will cause your life to be empty and fruitless if you see only shallow worthless purposes for the resources of life your life will be shallow and worthless so how then do we ensure our eyes are working correctly by obeying the lord this would be a real easy point for a preacher to say let me give you the percentage let me tell you what you should be giving i've got a great opportunity over here if you give this much you can expect this much in heaven obey the lord obey what ask him put it where where his kingdom is being furthered where he is being exalted where eternity is being valued press into your relationship with the lord ask him what he should wants you to be doing with what is his and he has put into your hands you're like jd you're talking more about money than you ever do it's where jesus has taken us i'm sorry this is this is uh what comes with preaching the next passage that comes along materialism not only enslaves the heart but also enslaves the mind and lastly here i want to challenge you to work from a personal kingdom commitment as you yield your life to god's kingdom economy he writes no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and money i think the power of these statements lie in the idea that jesus's hearers 
would have thought that their wealth kept them from being a slave to anyone. It's like, okay, well, I can, I can either serve God and try to get him to give me what I need, or I can provide for myself. And once I have enough wealth, I don't have to serve anybody. Jesus is saying, nope, you've traded service to one for service to another. And the fact is that you can't serve one and serve the other also. The lie is that serve, it's serving God versus letting money serve you. But the truth is we are either going to serve God or we're going to serve what we think sets us free. Or as Bob Dylan was, some of you guys have that song rambling around in your head, you got to serve someone. The situation is described, it's describing the life of a slave in New Testament times, expecting to, totally, to be totally devoted to one master. You know, an employee might be able to serve more than one customer, but a slave or a servant, especially in that, those days, could not be owned by two people, both holding 100% ownership. The theme here is undivided loyalty. When it talks about hating one and loving the other, it's a, it's a contrast between uh, being devoted to one versus no devotion to the other. It's the idea of like a football player playing wide receiver can only play for one of those teams on the field. He can't sit there and, and, and be running the play for one coach and then in the middle of the the play, the ball actually comes to him, and the other coach is like, now run it back the other way. It doesn't work. He's, only gonna, he's either going to be playing for one coach or the other is the picture here. Materialism is a constant competitor to God and his intention to be our chief love. As Deuteronomy 6.5, God told his people right from the very beginning of the giving of the law, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Or as Proverbs 3.9 explains how we are to worship God with the best of what we have when he says, honor the Lord your God with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. You guys that are really good gardeners, which is not me, or farmers, you know that that first tomato that first crop, that first yield, it's the best. And it takes trust for them to, to have obeyed God and to bring it to him because you're trusting that that next picking is going to come. The Apostle Paul exhorted the elders of Ephesus to be about what Jesus was about and taught, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we may help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is, be it is more blessed to give than to receive. Or as one writer says, It is not so much the disciples' wealth that Jesus is concerned with as the disciples' loyalty. Materialism is in direct conflict with loyalty to God. You know, the fact is in our world, a person is either a criminal or they're not. The sweet office manager that, that, that brings homemade cookies into work every Monday 
but it's just skimming $100 off just here and there. They're a criminal. The kind truck driver that helps little old ladies with flat tires but carries a shipment of fentanyl every now and then. He's a criminal. And in the same way, we have this mentality, especially in fleshly versions of Christianity. We have this mentality of, well, you know, I can live my life for me over here as long as I balance it out with living with the, for the Lord, you know, clocking in on Sunday mornings or, or as, you know, I can, I can spend my money the way I see fit with no consultation or concern about whether, what God wants me to do with it, as long as I, you know, give this much in the offering plate. That's not how it works. God is telling us we either have one master or the other. The same way it, do, it doesn't work to think that it's okay to serve ourselves as long as we balance it out. It doesn't work to divide the purpose of your life into compartments. It doesn't work to try to live part of your life for material gain and devote other parts of your life to God's purposes. That's what Jesus is saying here. One must and will win out over the other. If God is not going to, and God is not going to force you to be a person that views your possessions as being for his purposes. If you don't see your possessions as being for God's purposes, those material possessions will be your master. And they will define what you are willing to invest for his kingdom for your whole life. So how do we ensure that we are working for the right master? We resist the idea that our money is there to work for us. It's not our money. We make sure that we see all money as belonging to God to be used for his purpose. And yes, having food on the table is part of his purpose. So our finances have been given to us for our enjoyment as we set our hope on God. That's what we were told in 1 Timothy 6.17 as we read earlier. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. To set their hopes on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You know, we enjoy what God has given us as we walk with him in the use of them. And, and that relationship of walking with God, it comes through being reborn as his child. And our rebirth is made possible only by Christ's death. That's what we are to remember as we remember him in communion. All of this, walking with God, asking God, what do you want me to be about? Where do you want me to be serving you? What, what kingdom work do you want me to be about? It is only possible because Christ died. Not so that we could go to heaven. I mean, that's part of it. He died for us so that we could have relationship with him and so that that relationship could last for eternity in his presence. Some have 
been disappointed sometimes. And I'm not saying anybody that any church that does baby dedications or something like that is wrong or, or anything. We try to keep it simple. We don't do baby dedications and stuff only because we've been given two simple things by the Lord that he has said, make sure that you make this a part of your church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And, and so we gather together to remember, and as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, I received from the Lord as I also delivered to you that the Lord on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Meaning, eat this bread and think about my body that was broken for you. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We're going to have some folks come up and and lead us in some songs. We're going to sing two songs, and you're welcome maybe to, well, we have three tables, two in the back and one up front to my right. We encourage you either individually or as households, when your heart is prepared, to come and partake of the bread and the fruit of the vine. These have been given to us to remember Christ's body that was broken for us and to remember his blood that was spilt for us. So anytime, maybe you can dwell on it during that first song and go during the second or, or beat the rush, I don't know. We invite you to do that. And if you know Christ as your Savior, we invite you to participate in communion here this morning. Let's bow our heads. Lord, you have richly provided us with all things to be enjoyed as we set our hope on you. But this was not cheap. You did not buy this for us at a discount. You paid the full price. And that full price was the penalty for our sin. The penalty of every person from all time, past, present, and future. It, it seems a ridiculous statement to say that is no small thing. Only the eternal God in all of his almighty power could pull this off and make it available to us. And we thank you so much. And as you, you have told us to do, we recognize here this morning that it came through the breaking of Jesus' body and the spilling of his blood. Lord God, whatever it is that that needs to resonate, resonate in the corner, whatever corner of our life, that that needs to resonate in here this morning to set us free from a master 
that we have been looking toward, thinking that it is our hope. I pray, Lord God, that the body and blood of your Son would call us back to recognize that our hope can and should be set on you. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.